Breaking news in golf. Phil Mickelson is indeed signing up with Live Golf and will play in the inaugural event beginning this Thursday in London. All right, we got breaking news in golf where the PGA Tour has suspended the players who have left for the Saudi-backed uh, Live Golf Series. Greg Norman, the chief executive of the Live Golf Series, has claimed that 15-time major champion Tiger Woods has turned down a sum in the region of $700 to $800 million to join the Breakaway Tour. Breaking news today regarding the PGA Tour. Phil Mickelson, Bryson DeChambeau, and nine other Live Golf players have filed an antitrust lawsuit against the PGA Tour. The suit challenges the suspensions the PGA So much breaking news. It's been tough for us inside the world of golf to follow all the twists and turns of this PGA Tour and Live Golf saga. For normal people, it's got to be close to impossible to keep up. And so much of the coverage and discussion around the schism has been rather narrow in its focus. Is this player going? Is that player going? When will he go? What will the Masters do? And while all that immediate stuff is entertaining and it's definitely fun to speculate, it's easy to lose track of the big picture, the... 30,000-foot view. What's happening in the world of golf? Why is it happening? What is the current state of live? And perhaps most importantly, what does the future look like? Stenson, glorious. Magisterial. The Swedes sacrifice the Ryder Cup captaincy to join live golf. He has dominated the field here in Bedminster. Thank you. I'm Dan Rappaport, and this is Local Knowledge. Now, this is usually the part where I say we're going to dive into a specific topic, but I don't want to use the term dive in because we're actually trying to do the opposite. We're trying to zoom out, to take a deep breath, a step back, to remove ourselves from the gossip and the conjecture, and do our best to explain what's really happening and what might happen next. And in telling the story of Live Golf, you have to understand the genesis of Live Golf and the motivation behind it. And that, of course, brings us to the deserts of Saudi Arabia. The House of Saud has ruled the land now known as Saudi Arabia since the mid-1700s. The current king, Salman bin Abdulaziz al-Saud, is an absolute monarch. That means, basically, that he has unlimited power to do whatever he wants. But he's actually not the one making the decisions. That's Mohammed bin Salman, the king's seventh son, but the first from his third wife. It was Mohammed, who is known as MBS, who in 2016 first laid out the details of Vision 2030. To summarize, actually, we'll let Wikipedia do that for us. Saudi Vision 2030 is a strategic framework to reduce Saudi Arabia's dependence on oil, diversify its economy, and develop public service sectors such as health, education, infrastructure, recreation, and tourism. Sport is a crucial piece of Vision 2030. The Saudis have invested heavily in Formula One racing, bringing a Grand Prix to the kingdom. They struck a multi-year deal with WWE Wrestling. Late last year, the Saudis purchased a controlling share of the English Premier League soccer team Newcastle United. Now, their goal in this is profit, yes, but it's also access. If you own an English Premier League soccer team, then all of a sudden you're rubbing shoulders with English and European businessmen and companies. There's also the image aspect to it. Saudi Arabia is known as one of the more repressive governments on earth, but at least theoretically, if they're hosting a WWE wrestling match, they 
can't be that bad, right? And that's what's been labeled as sports washing, using sports to cover up their human rights atrocities. But the Saudis wouldn't use that word. They'd say sport is a vehicle to show the world that the country is evolving. And it's mostly worked. Here's Karen Elliott House, the former managing editor of the Wall Street Journal and the author of multiple books on Saudi Arabia. Sports thing, I think, has been pretty um, successful for them. I mean, the golf thing has gotten a lot of publicity, but, you know, buying um, Newcastle, start, uh, having Formula One races, all of that stuff has given them an opportunity to showcase we're changing. And they are. They are changing. So, about that golf thing. Now, the difference between what the Saudis have done in Formula One, professional wrestling, and soccer, and what they've done in golf is significant. In those other sports, they've played within the ecosystem. They pumped money into an already existing league or an already existing organization. They bought an English Premier League team. They didn't say, screw the English Premier League and form another soccer league in England. As of now, obviously, their involvement in golf isn't within the existing ecosystem. A player can, at least right now, play on either the PGA Tour or the Live Tour, but he can't do both. But if you take the Live executives for their word, that was never their intention. They'll tell you that they always wanted to collaborate with the PGA Tour to be accepted into the golf ecosystem. And by all accounts, they did indeed approach the PGA Tour with a proposal to collaborate. And the PGA Tour didn't return their call or their email. We're not entirely sure how the communication went, but I digress. So, why golf? Why pour all this money into a sport that's not nearly as popular as football or basketball or soccer or baseball? A few reasons. First, the other sports are just much tougher to crack given the structure of those leagues. There are owners. And if a team's not for sale, you're not getting one. And even if you could, the other owners have the power to vote against you taking over a team. It's a very insular circle. But golf? Golf was ripe for the taking. They saw the PGA Tour as a vulnerable product. Too many events, too US-centric, no guaranteed money for the players, constricted by their nonprofit status. And then there's just the people who hang around golf. Rich people. Here's Alan Shipnuck of the Fire Pit Collective, who wrote the Phil Mickelson book, the one that had all those wild quotes, and he's now writing a book on the Saudi infiltration of golf. There is a prestige factor. Like, Saudi Arabia is, is this weird mix where it's extremely traditional, we know that, but they're trying to reshape the, the economy and the country into something more modern. And so they're seeking acceptance in, in, in the corridors of power, right? And golf is, is a great avenue for that. So they, um, they're buying themselves access, they're buying themselves validity, um, and, and they're buying themselves the chance to, to capitalize on that. Because we all know that many deals get done on the golf course, right, across the, uh, you know, the economy here and elsewhere. And so all of a sudden, they're part of that. They wouldn't be part of it without Greg Norman, the CEO and face of Live Golf. Norman's no fan of the PGA Tour. We actually did a whole podcast on this back in January, but... Norman tried in the 90s to launch a world golf tour with the backing of Rupert Murdoch, but the PGA Tour fended off the challenge, and they embarrassed him in the process. He certainly hasn't forgotten. And that fuels him in this quest to reshape golf's we world order. about this in the media center. It's kind of amazing. It's still, it's still there, isn't it? That red ass. It's still there. I mean, okay, 
obviously Norman lost some golf tournaments, but basically he's been successful at everything he's done, whether it's, it's golf or business, but this is, this is the big defeat of his public life, you know, covered in shame and turned into a pariah. Like that doesn't go away. The PGA Tour is doing the same thing now that it did in the 90s. They're trying to fend off a challenge led by Greg Norman. The difference this time is that Norman has more money than the PGA Tour, and it's really not that close. The Public Investment Fund, the Saudi government-owned entity backing Liv, is estimated to have somewhere around $600 billion. Liv is said to be willing to spend 2 to $3 billion just to get this thing off the ground. Meanwhile, the total revenue of the PGA Tour in a given year is about $1.5 billion. It's just not that close. So while the Tour has done what it can, threatening to ban players if they join Liv and then actually suspending them once they did, Liv has continued on, undeterred. Part of that is Norman's personality, part of that is super deep pocketbooks, and part of that is MBS's personality. Here's Karen Elliott House again, describing how MBS responds when he doesn't get what he wants. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I think he, he doubles down. Um, you know, he is, he is not accustomed to losing. He can do whatever he wants to do. And when he fails at something, I mean, uh, I just, I think he's, his inclination is to, Try harder. All this to say, Live Golf isn't going anywhere anytime soon. It will, however, change quite a bit. This is Trump National Golf Club, one of America's premier courses, and our spectacular home for Live Golf Part 3. It's the Live Golf Invitational Bedminster, and it begins right now. I wasn't at the first Live event in London, but I was at both of the U.S. ones. The first one outside Portland and the more recent one at Trump Bedminster. The first thing that struck me were the lack of people. I got there for the first day of practice rounds in Oregon, but it was closed to the public, so no fans. Now, selfishly, we media people like that because we can talk to players a lot easier. And what became clear very quickly was how incredibly well taken care of they are by live. On the PGA Tour, players have to pay their own expenses. Flights, hotels, all of that. At live, it's all taken care of. And not just for the players. For their caddies, their coaches, agents, trainers, families. On the PGA Tour, you get a courtesy car. At Live, you have a driver to take you around wherever you want all week. Anytime a player needs anything, there's three Live employees there to help them sort through it. One agent told me it just seems like the answer to every single question is yes. There just don't seem to be many rules. The players and their families come first, second, and third, and they can do basically whatever they want. Bryson DeChambeau had his video team inside the ropes filming content during practice rounds and during competition. That would never fly on the PGA Tour. This, of course, is in addition to the massive guaranteed money they're getting no matter if they shoot 66 or 86. The reported numbers vary, but guys like Brooks Kepka, Phil Mickelson, Bryson DeChambeau, and Dustin Johnson, they all signed for more than $100 million. And with the no-cut format, even if they finish dead last because they have no expenses, they net 120 grand for the week. It all produces a very stress-free attitude. The guys feel like they're finally being pampered and looked after, and they like that feeling. I remember walking past one of the players warming up before the first round at the Portland event. He flushed a three-wood, and I muttered, that'll work. He goes, yep, but who the hell cares if it doesn't? Liv's strategy is clear. 
Roll out the red carpet for players and the people around them and hope the word spreads. You want a guy texting his PGA Tour pal something like, hey, you guys won't believe how good we have it here at Live Golf. Welcome, fans and listeners of the Be Right Podcast. My name is Christopher Powers, and we need to have a serious chat. Uh, we are sad to report that we will no longer be known as the Be Right Podcast. I know Be Right loyalists just fell off their collective couches. We are now going to be known as the Loop Podcast. So we'll stick to our content, we'll stick to our great guests, but uh, we'll try to have a little more fun, talk about football and, and basketball and whatever else you know kind of piques our interest that particular day. So uh, we hope you stick with us. We hope you tell your friends, your family, everybody you know. Come listen to The Loop. Uh, like, subscribe, leave a rating, review. Uh, new chapter, exciting chapter. Um, we're pumped up. We hope you guys are too. But I also quickly noticed at Portland, and the same was true at Bedminster, that there were zero corporate logos anywhere. Like, none. The only branding you see is Liv's. There's no sponsored corporate hospitality tents, no presented by signs. It's just live, live, live. And I couldn't help but think about just how much money they were spending to put these events on, in addition to how much they're paying the players, and how little money was coming in to offset those costs. They have to be, at least at the moment, just hemorrhaging money in order to get this thing off the ground. But that's all part of the plan. And it's not a short plan. A live executive told me at Portland that they're thinking 20, 30 years down the road. I interviewed Atul Kosla at the Bedminster event. AK, as he goes by, left a gig as the chief corporate development and brand officer for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers to become Liv's chief operating officer. Now, like any other startup, do we have upfront costs uh, to get the product off the ground? Yes, we do. And it is no different than a burn rate that an Uber may have or a burn rate that any other startup tech may have to get a product off on the ground with the vision of disrupting that disrupting that space. So we are no different from, from that lens. We are fortunate, of course, to have an um, institution that has the patience uh, to be able to go through this in, in methodically and in the right fashion. Kosla refers to Live Golf as a startup, which I find a touch humorous given it's going toe-to-toe with the PGA Tour. It's not exactly four guys in a garage. Anyways, startups often lose money in their fledgling stages because you have to spend to get a business off the ground. you got to pay people to work on the business. you got to spend money to market the business, all of that. But the idea is to eventually have the money come back to make a profit. Now, whether this is Liv's goal has been a topic of debate. One view, and this is what the PGA Tour people will tell you, is that this cannot possibly turn a profit. It's not just that they've spent all those hundreds of millions on the big names, it's that they've given guys like Ian Poulter $40 million. This view suggests that the Saudis don't care about profit or making their money back, that this is all a glorified public relations exercise. Sports washing. When I ask the live people whether this is true, are you guys just working to improve the image of the government and not profit-motivated? They laugh. From the truth, and that while you guys are, are probably willing to, to eat some losses in the beginning, mm-hmm. eventually this is a business. Is, is, that, is that the truth? Absolutely. There is, you know, we are a 
You've worked in sports business for a long time. Yeah. Uh, we're also, if you look at the investment portfolio of our, our primary investor, PIF, they have invested all over the world in incredibly uh, large businesses and made our profitable businesses. And we are, the, the view, their view of this is no different. That's the expectation that we have from, from our board. But how? How are they going to turn Live Golf into a profitable business? A broadcast deal is the first step. This year, Live Events are broadcast free on YouTube. That's not going to continue to be the case next year when Live transitions to a 14-event league schedule. If they sign up more players, which they're expected to do after the FedEx Cup playoffs, the thinking is some cable channel or streaming platform will decide the PR pushback is worth it to have rights to show people some of the best golfers in the world. Live is also already negotiating corporate partnerships and sponsors. Those are important pieces. But the most important depends on Liv being able to fundamentally change the way fans conceptualize the sport. Simple, right? The game of golf can be lonely, isolating. Each swing and every putt comes with unrelenting pressure on the individual. But like anything, those wins and even those losses are sweeter when shared with others. That's the power of teamwork. No longer are golf rivalries just one-on-one, -on -one, individual versus individual. Now, they are team versus team, country versus country. Liv is trying to modernize golf to make it younger and faster and more exciting. Golf, but louder. That's the official mantra. The fields are limited to 48 players. The tournaments are 54 holes. There's a shotgun start. And there's a team component. 12 teams of four. The best two scores count for the first two days and three count for the last. The team names and logos, which do look a bit clip arty, have been easy targets for golf Twitter. They're kind of silly. Crushers, Torque, Majestics. I'm out here with Ian Poulter and Laurie Cantor. I'm really pleased Laurie turned up because now I don't have to talk to Ian quite so much. <laughs> Can I propose the bet? Loser does morning Starbucks run. Yeah. Okay. So you're down to Starbucks, pick up the coffee for the for the winner or the second place as well. Deliver yep. to the room. Delivered to the rooms. Delivered to the room. To me, the team aspect initially seemed like a cringy sideshow. Golf is the sport of rugged individualism. This isn't the Ryder Cup. There was this weird draft at the first live event with captains that were appointed by Live, and then the teams totally changed for the second event, and it all just seemed like one big mess. Enough with the teams, right? Wrong. So, so wrong. As I'd come to learn, the team component is a vital part of the business model. How crucial is the team model I think to this whole vision? I think it's huge, right? We are introducing something... From a to, financial standpoint as well. Absolutely, right? So we're introducing something to golf that is very common in every other stick and ball sports pretty much all around the world, right? We are introducing that type of a concept to golf. So now you have 12... 12 teams, uh, there's a valuation eventually for those teams, there's equity being held by the league, there's equity being held by players. Um, and there will be a chance to uh, further, you know, get additional investors in, as if one, one wants to dilute that uh, invest, you know, their initial investment. That is classic work that happens in, you know, sports today. Right. Uh, teams get valued, teams get sold. Mm -hmm. um, 
we are clearly introducing the type for concept here and the players are absolutely bought into it. That was a lot of corporate jargon, so I'll simplify. Liv basically created these teams out of thin air. Liv mostly owns the teams right now, but some of the bigger stars at Liv, think Phil, Bryson, Brooks, they own a portion of their teams too. Now, the plan is to create value in these teams and eventually to sell them. So how do you make a team valuable? Talent, obviously, is the first step. The teams need good players. And identity helps too, which is why you've seen Liv put all the Japanese players together, all the Spanish speakers, the Brits. There's rumors of an all-Australian team in the works. And while these teams seem to be ever-shifting this year, that won't be the case during the league schedule in 2023. There will be the same 48 players at every event, and the same 12 teams of four. But who would buy these teams? It could be corporations, and this is where the comparisons to Formula One racing come into play. Now, Live execs constantly compare their vision to that of F1. There are 10 teams in Formula One. Red Bull, Ferrari, Mercedes, Alpine, McLaren, Alfa Romeo, Haas, Alfa Tari, Aston Martin, and Williams. Each team has two drivers, and the teams are responsible for negotiating deals with the drivers. It's similar to American sports in that way. Stephen Curry has a contract with the Warriors, not with the NBA. Live execs view a similar structure where, and these are just random hypothetical examples, Team TaylorMade or Team Adidas or Team Omega have the freedom and the autonomy to sign players, to cut players, to trade players. And if everything goes to plan, viewers will become fans of certain teams. So it could be companies, or it could just be rich people who love golf. There are no shortage of those. Say Liv does indeed sign Hideki Matsuyama as they've been rumored to do. He's such a massive star in Japan, it's very easy to imagine a Japanese multi-billionaire cutting a check so he can feel closer to the action. Sports franchises are the most expensive, the most rare toy that money can buy. Back to Alan Shipnuck. But yeah, I mean, there's a finite number of NFL teams and English Premier League franchises and all these status markers for rich dudes, you know, who, who want to be on the inside. They want to feel like they're part of something. And I'm sure this is, you know, th these franchises are going to be a lower price point uh, than any of those entities. And all of a sudden you get to play in the Pro-Ams. Maybe you get to go on the yacht with Dustin and Paulina. Uh, you're, you're up in someone's Instagram. Like it's... Uh, it's intoxicating. You know, if, what, what does the man who has everything want to buy? I mean, access and celebrity and things that are uh, that are not as easily attainable. Yeah, I have no doubt they will sell these franchises and they'll probably command a pretty good price. We have a pretty good idea of what Liv's ideal future looks like. 12 teams, each stacked with players, all owned by either individuals or corporations, with 14 events all around the world. The U.S., Saudi Arabia, of course, Europe, Asia, Australia. But they also maintain that they want to work with the PGA Tour and exist within the golf ecosystem still. Is there still, I know initially there was a desire to work with the PGA Tour and, and sort of within the golf ecosystem. Does that still exist? Absolutely. I think that, that has been our uh, desire and objective from the get-go. We, we absolutely want to be and feel like we very much are additive to the ecosystem and uh, are very willing and want to continue to work with uh, all the tours. Some PGA Tour players seem to want this sort of Yalta conference to take place. I've heard some people wonder why the PGA Tour can't run from January to August, with Liv having its events in the fall under the PGA Tour umbrella. It makes sense on paper, but you do wonder if it's become a little too personal on both sides now. 
if the PGA Tour executives are so dug in that they can't negotiate for fear of looking weak, and if the Saudis feel slighted that they were shunned initially and want to destroy the PGA Tour. For what it's worth, the players don't seem to hold those grudges. At the Open, John Rahm said he hopes the PGA Tour and Liv sit down and talk. Then there was Rory McIlroy, who's been essentially the PGA Tour spokesman throughout this whole thing, suggesting he thinks the influx of Saudi money can be a positive if used in the right way. If it keeps going the way it's going, it's going to fracture the game. And it's, sorry, it's going to fracture the game more than it already is because this, you know, the professional world in golf has already been fractured. There's so many different tours, so many things to follow. And, you know, I've always been an advocate of trying to make it more cohesive and try to get people to work together more. If the Saudis are, are hell-bent on, on spending money in golf, like, let's try to get it spent in a way that benefits the wider ecosystem. I think that's where I would like to see it going, but... Whether that happens or not, that's, that remains to be seen. The PGA Tour, it seems, has precisely zero interest in doing that. Here's Commissioner Jay Monahan responding to a question about whether he could see the PGA Tour collaborating with Liv. We're going down our path. We're going to continue to go down our path. We're excited about what we've announced today. And there's more exciting news to come. Um, and we're going to do it as, you know, as a tour, as a collective, and with a group of members that are squarely behind uh, their tour. I tried to interview PGA Tour executives for this podcast to ask them if they'd be open to collaborating. It didn't happen. A certain lawsuit that we'll discuss in a bit took precedence, but the tour's response to me was something along the lines of, the PGA Tour is not for sale, and we're not interested in exhibition golf. From what I gather, the PGA Tour has no plans of coming to the table to negotiate anytime soon. Far more likely is these two organizations continue operating in parallel universes independent of each other, or, as Jay Monahan put it, going down their own path. During that same press conference, Monahan announced a number of really significant changes to the PGA Tour structure. Now, only 70 players will make it to the FedEx Cup playoffs, down from 125. And the top 50 in the FedEx Cup standings would qualify for international series events that will be held around the world and won't have a cut. And the purses for eight invitationals are increasing to an average of $20 million per tournament. Now, the PGA Tour was going to be upping their purses even before Live because their new TV deal, which is nine years and $6 billion, kicked in this year. But it's hard to ignore the timing. Live comes on the scene, and the Tour responds not just with increased purses, but with the Player Impact Program, a way to compensate their most famous players for something not directly tied to their on-course performance. As far as money goes, there's never been a better time to be a professional golfer. And it's no mystery why some guys want to play both tours, which is why 11 of them are suing the PGA Tour. And when trying to predict what's going to happen in the coming years, well, that's going to depend on this lawsuit. Getting news of more legal action surrounding the breakaway Saudi-backed Live Golf Tour. This being reported tonight by the Wall Street Journal, who say that 11 of the live golfers have filed an antitrust lawsuit. They're suing the PGA Tour, uh, challenging the suspensions that have been issued to them for joining the breakaway tour. And it's seen as um, the start of what could be a lengthy legal battle. The lawsuit dropped on Wednesday. 11 players, including Phil and Bryson, filed an antitrust complaint against the PGA Tour. A very, very long complaint. Here's Darren Heitner, an expert attorney in sports law. 
we're talking about some of the biggest firms in the country who are now embroiled in federal litigation in San Francisco, um, and who, by the way, drafted a 106-page complaint, not including exhibits. Is that is that like much longer than normal? Is 106 that many pages normal? Absolutely not. And I'd say typically a complaint is anywhere between five to 20 pages. So that gives you an idea of just how thorough and extensive this draft was and how much time it certainly took these lawyers to, to put this together. The crux of the complaint, well, there's actually two. One, the players allege that the PJ Tour acted willfully and unlawfully in maintaining a monopoly on professional golf in the United States. That's important, that distinction of willful and unlawful, because simply having monopoly power is actually not illegal. But they have to show that the Tour acquired or maintained that power willfully, that it wasn't just power that arose and continued based on the development of a superior product or based on the business acumen of the people who are behind the PGA. Right. So like, I, I was going to sort of ask about like the NFL, right? Like the NFL obviously has a monopoly on professional football in the United States, but you're saying that's not illegal because the monopoly sort of happened under like, yeah, it's a monopoly is going to happen if you have a better product. Yeah. And you don't see the XFL or the USFL or any other startup football league successfully litigating in the recent past against the NFL based on the fact that it inherently has market power. The complaint also accuses the PJ Tour of unlawfully colluding with other power brokers in the golf ecosystem to ensure that Live Golf doesn't succeed. But that's a hairy argument, according to Darren. Live Golf is not the plaintiff. And so if these players are arguing it's unfair that the PGA Tour unlawfully colluded with others, including the European Tour, to prevent Live Golf from succeeding. Well, Live Golf isn't the grieving party. How is that hurting in any way the plaintiffs? Here, the PGA Tour is alleged as having this monopoly power, yet it's not controlling prices or excluding competition. In fact, prices are up. The players are getting paid more money elsewhere. Reading between the lines, and of course, this is just one man's opinion, but it's an informed opinion, Darren seems to think the PGA Tour will prevail in this suit, which might actually be a bad thing for golf if you want to see everyone come together. Here's Alan Shipnuck. That might be the best thing that happens for the Tour if they lose this court case, because then they can say, well, we fought the good fight, we were never going to compromise, but the court has, and so now let's bring these people onto our schedule, and let's give membership back to the players we lost, and let's just move forward together. And so... Uh, it's that's what's so fascinating. I mean, there's so many different forces at play here. That might be the best case scenario for golf fans, a forced detente that leads to a world tour with all the best players, but it's not likely to happen. Not soon, at least. If the PGA Tour wins this suit and guys can't play both tours, there will continue to be live golfers and PGA Tour golfers. And then the attention shifts to the world ranking question. As of right now, Live does not offer world ranking points, which means a bunch of Live guys are sliding down the world rankings and they're going to stop getting into major championships. Live execs are convinced that they will indeed get ranking points and that their players will continue to have access to the majors. But if they don't, then what? Then things could get ugly. 
We know they're not gonna just fold up shop and call it a day. As we discussed, that's not how MBS operates. And as long as they're cutting the types of checks that they're cutting, there will be guys to take them. So what would stop Liv from saying, you know what, screw you guys. You kept our guys out of the majors. To hell with the majors. We're gonna have an event, same week as the PGA Championship, and we're gonna double the purse, and all our guys are gonna play. In this increasingly fractured landscape of pro golf, the majors are the glue that's holding the golf universe together. But if the majors and the Ryder Cup side with the PGA Tour, which they very well might do, and they make it hard or impossible for live golfers to get into them, and then some top guys still decide to take the money from Liv over playing in those events, well, if you think we have a schism now, that would be, that would be a clean break. That's how a sport crumbles. And that's the worst case scenario. A bunch of tours, too many events to keep track of, and no events that matter beyond the money. Maybe I'm being overly optimistic here, but it's hard to see that happening. More likely is the parallel universe scenario where Liv does get world ranking points. Maybe they tweak their format to appease the OWGR board. And you'll have Liv guys and PGA Tour guys, and they'll meet four times a year at the majors. Sort of like the different soccer leagues across Europe with the best teams facing off in the Champions League. But golf isn't soccer. Are there really enough golf fans to sustain two premier world tours? Or would golf go more in the direction of boxing? which has splintered into so many organizations that it's hard to know if a title fight is really a title fight and it's just not nearly as popular as it was in decades past. There's already so many tour events that nobody really cares about, except for the local community. And now you have these live events that nobody really cares about. Like there's, there's too much apathy built into this whole ecosystem now. Like you need better tournaments with more stars that people are going to support. And then the, the game is spread really thin right now. So I, I feel like there has to be a reckoning where where there's a, a, thin, a synthesis of these different tours, these different tournaments, and all and get all these players back together. Because otherwise, I think they've all the product's been diluted across the board, and that's not good for anybody. So what's going to happen? What does professional golf look like in five years? I wish I had a better answer for you. But one thing is clear. The way things are going right now is not sustainable. If, that is, you care about the future of golf. Local Knowledge is produced by Greg Gottfried with editorial guidance from Sam Weinman. The music for today's episode is called Scraped Knee and Surgery, and it's by Waxed Lyricist. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, leave a review, and download the episodes. That's important. Thanks, guys.